The Charles Adler Show starts now. Starts now. I love those two words. I also love the two words, Max Fawcett. Not just because I enjoy talking to him. I do like calling me Uncle Chuck, but because clearly responses are telling us that uh, people who download podcasts really enjoy downloading the, the wisdom of Max Fawcett. Max, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back, Uncle Chuck. So, Max, let me uh, just begin with this business of the, um, the homophobia, transphobia, whatever you want to call it, um, this uh, idea of parental rights. Uh, uh, parents uh, cannot trust uh, teachers with their children, cannot trust teachers to educate their children. This is sounding so similar to my ear to the idea that we cannot trust doctors with COVID. We cannot trust doctors with public health regulations including uh, vaccines. Uh, we can only trust the anti-vaxxer activists. Now, I could be wrong about this, but it just appears that the parental rights folks and the anti-vax folks seem to be the same. I mean, it's just like the same people are steering both clown cars, or or is that just my perspective? No, I think you're 100% right. It's 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 the same carnival. They've just moved on to a different ride. Um, you know, it's the same basic... Um, mistrust of government, mistrust of experts, mistrust of educated people. Um, it's that kind of stew of resentment and fear, and it's being applied to a new target. Um, this is sort of, I think, one of the enduring realities of, of, of the Freedom Convoy is it's never really gone away, right? It just keeps attaching itself to new causes and new grievances. Um, you know, so it was it was vaccines, um, and now it's the LGBTQ community and, and goodness knows where it's going to go next. But it's all kind of motivated by the same fear of people who maybe are more educated and uh, and more accomplished. I don't know. It's uh, you know, I, I understand the trepidation that some parents have about about this. What feels like an explosion of sort of trans um identification among kids, right? I, I understand the the kind of concern that, that a parent might have where they think, well, where is this coming from? This wasn't around when I was a kid. All of a sudden, it's everywhere. Um, you know, I think part of that is the same thing people said about the, the gay, gay community a generation ago. You know, well, there wasn't many gay kids when I went to school. Why are there so many now? It's because they didn't feel comfortable um, being their true selves. But, you know, part of it is also, I think, in a weird way, there's some power uh, as a teenager uh, that you might have, you know, by by going down this road, by kind of throwing your parents for a loop. And, and you know, you kind of got to let it play out, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, these laws, these policies that are being brought forward, I've, you know, I've tried to make this point to a couple of conservatives online. This doesn't apply to you if you're a good parent, right? If you have a good, trusting relationship with your kid, if they talk to you, if they share their fears, their concerns, what's happening at school then you don't need to rely on the school to tell you that they've changed their their pronoun because they will have told you first. They will have talked it out with you. So, you know, the, if you're a good parent, if you have a, a good open relationship with your kids, don't worry about this stuff. And if you are worried about this stuff, maybe put that effort into improving your relationship with your kids. Like, it's it's just such a weird thing to be panicked about. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm approaching it a bit too rationally here. I don't know. I, I do start hearing parents saying things like, you know, I, I'm worried that, uh, you know, Tommy is, 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 is going to school at, 
8.30 in the morning. And uh, when I see Tommy at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Tommy will think that he's Janie. When I, when I first heard this stuff, I thought, this is absolutely insane. But I can't call it insane in the sense that I can't pretend that sane people aren't involved in this kind of thinking and this kind of uh, fear. Can we just to start with uh, with biology? Because I, 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 I tend to choose science over gossip. What does the biology tell us about the percentage of human beings who we think uh, want to transgender? Oh, goodness. I, I am speaking well out of school here. I didn't take biology in high school. I was one of those kids who <laughs> opted, opted for physics and chemistry instead. But you know, if memory serves, I, I think it's in the neighborhood of one to two percent. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a huge number. Um, maybe it's a bit more. You know, maybe it's maybe it's more when when there's sort of a, a political kind of uh, opportunity to to you know to to be rebellious, to be different. You know, like part of part of being a kid and being a teenager is creating distance from your parents and, and, and the culture that they come from. It's about, you know, shocking them and, and upsetting them and ruffling their feathers, whether that's, you know, the music you listen to or, um, you know, the clothes you wear or the way you identify. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is, is transitory. Um, you know, it's a stage, it's a process, you play it out and, and move on to other things. Uh, and, you know, the worst thing you can do, I think, as a parent is overreact to to something like that. But, you know, look, for most parents, uh, this is not anything they need to be worried about. And and for the ones that are worried, <laughs> talk to your kids, um, have an open relationship with them. The best way to, you know, to know what's going on in their heads and their lives is to make sure that the, the space at home is just as welcoming as the space at school, because, you know, it. If if kids feel free to be one way at school and and not at home, that's that's a tell, right? That's that's an indication that that as a parent you have work to do, not that the school has done anything wrong. So, some parents fear that teachers will encourage them uh, to have surgery to transgender, and I have a hard time believing. I mean, I've known a lot of teachers. I've known a lot of principals in my day. I have a hard time believing that any principal would encourage a teacher to go that far. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, that just, that that's almost like satanic panic stuff where, you know, uh, you know, teachers are encouraging kids to, to, I don't know, sacrifice animals at school. Like it's, it's, it's myth, it's legend. It's, um, you know, it, it's not something that reflects the reality of why people become teachers. Um, you know, people, I know lots of teachers. I don't know a single one of them who is ideological uh, in their, approach uh you know they're sort of guiding principles number one they want to do a good job number two uh they want their kids to succeed and to thrive and to be good citizens they they don't go into schools wanting to you know apply their particular worldview and shape children in a in a different way what i think some people are reacting to is that is that teachers tend to be um more current in their in their education and their awareness of of social trends and and are are uh, willing to sort of practice uh, a policy of, of tolerance. And some people feel very threatened by that, right? They find that scary. They find that, uh, you know, a direct sort of challenge to traditional values, traditional uh, worldviews. But that's not ideology. That's just reality. You know, I was having a conversation with someone on Twitter about this, and I was sort of saying, like, you know, 
your job as a parent and their job as teachers is to prepare kids for the world that exists, not the world that you used to live in or the world that you wish you lived in, but the world that they have to go out into. And yeah, part of that is that there are trans people who exist and we accept them and we support them. That's, you know, that's the world. And um, if you want to prepare your kids for some 1960s version of the world, then you should probably homeschool them because uh, that's that's not what's going to happen in any public, even private school that I know of. Yeah, you're 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 much kinder than I am. I, I usually just say to folks, if you turn on the cable guide that most of us have, because most of us still have cable, uh, and you don't see Leave It to Beaver on the guide, it's because Leave It to Beaver left TV a long time ago, and Leave It to Beaver is not returning to TV. It's not returning to the classroom. Let me ask a, a, a basic question, though, in terms of what is being taught and, and not taught, because among all of the fears. Uh, of what is or isn't going on in schools. There is this fear that math, science, English, French, history, you know, ba- the, the basics are not being taught, that the entire school curriculum is being dominated and hijacked by these culture wars. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is more space for, um, you know, tolerant social values, identity-based things than there was in the curriculum 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, I, and I think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about whether there needs to be more of a focus on, quote-unquote, the basics. Um, you know, I do think that, you know, math education is super important. Uh, I think financial literacy is incredibly important for, for kids to have coming out of high school. I think you can make, and conservatives can make a very good case around that, that there needs to be more focus on tangible life skills and less focus on sort of uh, celebrating people's identity. Um, But it's odd that that always ends up focusing on minorities. It always focuses on the LGBTQ community. It always comes back to the same group. And it sort of makes me wonder whether it's not really about the back to basic stuff. It's about they don't want kids being taught that it's okay to be gay, that it's okay to be tolerant of other ways of being. And, and, and to me, that's, you know, that's all, a couple of bridges too far. You know, it's, it's interesting in Alberta, we had this, this conversation with the previous government where Jason Kenney brought in this curriculum that was, that was very sort of leave it to beaver inspired. You know, it was all about learning about Roman history and Greek history and ancient history. And, and, you know, it was a very classical education. Um, and, and it, you know, it did not, survive contact with the public because I think the public understood pretty quickly that this was an attempt to teach people and orient people to a a very sort of Western Eurocentric version of the world that we don't live in anymore. Um, You know, I think there are good, interesting conversations to be had about what should be taught in the curriculum, but we are wasting way too much time and energy with this sideshow, uh, you know, around, uh, basically outing trans kids that's happening in Saskatchewan, that's happening in Ontario, that happened in New Brunswick. You know, conservative premiers are seeing that this is an effective wedge issue for them, um, that that parents are sufficiently unaware of the issue or scared of the issue that they can kind of use it to distract them. Uh, and to me, that's just, that's just unproductive. So the, some of these conservative premiers, and I guess the latest would be Doug Ford in Ontario, are seeing pollsters like Angus Reid agree with them. If you look at an Angus Reid poll on the uh, the question of um, should uh, teacher 
uh, tell the parent or keep it from the parent that uh, Johnny or Janie um, wants their pronouns changed. Um, uh, Angus Reid says the overwhelming uh, majority of uh, those who want to weigh in on the issue weigh in on the side of what, what you're calling uh, conservative ideology. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is the way the question is asked. If you if you ask parents if they want things withheld from them, most people are instinctively just, you know, based on the way it's been framed, going to say, no, I want all the information. I think if you frame that in a different way, you would get a slightly different response. But, you know, public opinion is not always the best guide for these sorts of things. I, I would submit to you that, you know, a couple of generations ago when capital or when corporal punishment, excuse me, was was you know, thought to be a useful parenting technique, if you'd ask parents, you know, do you support corporal punishment? Vast majority of parents would have said, absolutely, I do. And guess what? It turned out to be a really terrible idea. So I, I'm not sure that you can, you can hide behind a consensus on an issue like this when people are still largely uninformed about what's really going on and when society is moving in a direction where this could change pretty quickly. Um, it's also interesting to me that, that, you know, premiers like Doug Ford are hiding behind public public opinion on this, but on things like climate change, they they don't seem nearly as interested in what the public has to say. They 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 don't they aren't guided by that at all. It's very sort of convenient um, use of of that as a as a political shield. But you know, like look, this is what we've seen in the United States: is the Republican Party does not do. Um, traditional Republican policies anymore. They don't advocate for lower taxes. They don't advocate for smaller government. They don't advocate for individual responsibility. They use culture wars as a distraction to, to get their, their voters, you know, riled up and, and voting and supporting them. And, and I think we're seeing conservatives in this country realize that. I saw a story the other day that the conservative convention uh, that's coming up in a short little while is going to have lots of talk about culture war issues around you know, um, trans issues around, um, you know, school policy, all these sorts of things that really aren't even Polyev's bread and butter. It's not the thing that has him, you know, ahead by double digits in the polls, but they seem determined to spend their time, you know, uh, getting their, their voters riled up with this, this culture war stuff rather than bedrock conservative principles. Is it, just as a practical matter, is it possible they're going to focus on culture wars as opposed to smaller government and, and, and lower taxes and climate change and even housing is simply because the culture wars business really animates the base in a way that nothing else does. I think so. Um, you know, I think climate change is, is one that does animate the base, but not in a way that's helpful for conservatives when they want to win elections. So yeah, I think, I think they may use this, um, uh, as fuel uh, to keep their their base riled up. I think also the the you know the smarter minds in the conservative uh, leader's office and and believe me they do exist um, understand that the cost of living issue could be off the table by 2025 when we have an election. You know we we know that inflation is coming off the boil. We know that that you know uh, that the numbers are trending in the right direction. So. You know, but in two years' time, it could be a much less pressing issue, and I think they understand that they need to have something else at the ready to keep people uh, engaged and animated and willing to, you know, open their wallets uh, and, and volunteer for them. Because, you know, that is sort of how the conservative party and conservative parties are operated now. They have this small group of very intensely loyal, very intensely intense supporters who donate money, volunteer. Uh, 
and they need to keep them constantly uh, in the game. Max Fawcett, I know that you're spending a good deal of time in your National Observer columns, all of which are, are must-reads, in my opinion, on the issue of, of housing, because we have a genuine housing crisis on several levels in this country. We've got a very uh, intelligent new minister of housing, federal housing. Uh, this would be uh, Sean Fraser, who's the former immigration minister. Now, the other day, the, the, the current immigration minister, Miller, said that and uh, correct me if I'm wrong about this, because the number just seemed really high, said that this year, 900,000 people in this country are not from this country because they came here recently to study. That is, the universities have brought in 900,000 people from different parts of the world. Does that number seem high? I I thought it was eight hundred thousand, but I mean eight hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand. It's it's an insane number. Um, it's crazy, and it's funny because I you know I've been aware of this for all, over a decade um, that you know post secondary institutions were kind of told uh, a while back. You know, basically, you know, you're not going to get much more funding from the government. Find your own sources, and they realized that bringing in foreign students to study was a was a bonanza. You know, you can charge them much more in tuition. Uh, you know, they tend to stay in your in your residences. That there's just a, a very good revenue stream there. And so, you know, what we saw was just this massive build out of of infrastructure and uh, and a student body that that wasn't from Canada. It, through no fault of anyone's, uh, you know, they were simply responding to incentives. But I remember like. Capilano College in Vancouver, where you know my mom used to teach. I have friends go there. It just magically got got upgraded to a university. Now, it didn't offer a Bachelor of Arts program. Uh, it wasn't really a university. Why did they upgrade it? Because the name university made it more attractive to international students. Um, you know, th this the same thing happened in Alberta. It happened in Ontario with Ryerson. Uh, here with Mount Royal, uh, it, it was this sort of reorientation of the entire post secondary institution. Uh, universe towards attracting uh, this this new stream of of applicant, and yeah, that had a that had a big effect on the housing market because unfortunately they weren't building nine hundred thousand units of housing for all these students, uh, and so they were you know renting in nearby uh, houses, bedroom, condos, apartments, what have you, and, and chewing up the the supply that used to be kind of available for for other people, and you know it. I've been kind of raising the, the warning flag about this for a while, that the consensus that we have in this country around immigration, that it's good, that it supports economic growth, that we, you know, we all generally, um, you know, it's, it's a thing that distinguishes us from most countries in the world, certainly the United States, that is not guaranteed, that is not written in stone. And if especially young people start looking at the housing market and realizing that they're paying $3,200 a month for a one bedroom, in part because you know, the federal government is letting uh, so many people into, into the country to study, they're going to have a response. And it may not be the response that any of us particularly want to see. So, you know, it's interesting that the feds are kind of just getting their heads around this now when I know people have been warning them about it for quite some time. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how they, how they address this without there being some sort of collateral damage. Well, this is just my what I'll call my my common sense political mind. Um, you cannot succeed as a as a federal liberal 
without getting the people under the age of 45 voting for you. It's just, it's just not possible. So I do not understand why uh, the Liberals would allow a situation like this to fester, one in which the demographic that is most heavily involved and most highly aware is the demographic of people between the ages of 18 and 45 for the most self-evident reasons. They are the ones who are involved in this uh, opportunity. If some people want to, if you're a landlord, I guess it's an opportunity of, 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 of looking at one bedrooms at $3,200 in this country when you're not really making any money, you're existing on student loans. So I don't understand how um, a liberal government would look at this metastasizing over the years and not see it as a concerning issue. I mean, how, how, do, how do you square the math? I mean, part of it is, is I think, willful blindness. I, I, I can't remember who said this, but I, I think it was Paul Wells, but I don't, I'm not, I'm like 90% sure. But they, there was an anecdote about a, a senior public servant who, in the federal government, who expressed shock that the, the you know, the, the, the foreign student program, uh, you know, the, the, the visas that they were giving students to come study here were really being used and being marketed by universities as a, as a very short path to, uh, you know, landed resident status and, and a path to living in Canada. Um, even though the universities were marketing uh, in this in this way, you know, they go to other parts of the world and say, hey, if you want to live in Canada, come study at our university for two or three years. And that gets you on the short path to becoming, you know, becoming a landed resident and then you can get your your citizenship. So, you know, it, it's not like people weren't flagging this for them, but it seems like government officials and then trickling up to the political side either didn't believe it or didn't think it was a priority. Um, you know, it, I, it, it really is not a good look. Um, and, and they are, they are paying a very high price for it right now. If you look at some of the polls lately, the, you know, the abacus data poll had the liberals in third place, third place, not second place, third place among Canadians under the age of, I think 45 or 44. Yeah. yeah. Canadians and I mean, just, we're talking millennials. I mean, it's, it's, I think I think it's catechism in in politics that if you're a left of center party and you can't get millennials, you're out of business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they, you know, the, the the I would say one of the hallmarks of this government is they they're good on the big issues. You know, they're good on COVID. They're good on climate change. They get the big things right, but when it gets into the details, especially the economic details, um, they lose focus. And I think they lost focus of how bad housing was when they took government. I mean, it was, you know, Paulia, you know, keeps trying to pretend like housing was tickety boo when the conservatives were in power. I, you know, living in Vancouver and Toronto, it was not good. Um, you know, housing was very expensive, um, but it has gotten so much worse, especially in the last little while, especially in the rental market, um, that it has reached, you know, genuine crisis proportions now. Um, and they took their eye off the ball the whole time. Um, you know, they didn't take it seriously. Uh, you know, they had a housing minister before Sean Fraser who, you know, not only owned his own rental properties, but, you know, wrote an op-ed like basically weeks ago saying that, you know, oh, we shouldn't blame the municipalities. It's not their fault. Like just no sense of he, he, he wrote in that op-ed. I remember that, you know, this is a crisis that affects hundreds of thousands of Canadians wrong it affects millions of canadians <laughs> no. possibly tens of millions of canadians um so they just didn't get it um and you know as i've said as i've written if if Polyev can 
can stay away from the culture war stuff and the vaccine stuff. And clearly he can't. But if he can find a way to distract himself long enough to just focus on housing, the next election is his. It's his in a cakewalk at this point. Yeah, some things are really just about the math. Uh, There's no ideology here. So I'm looking at the math. If if somewhere between 800 and 900,000 students are being accepted as foreign students and they clearly need food and shelter, okay, and you've got half a million people being brought in as regular uh, immigrants, you know, that's almost 1.5 million new Canadians. This is a country of 40 million people. I don't think anybody believes that we've got housing that can accommodate that number. And if we don't, it means that house prices, which have been accelerating, are going to continue to do precisely that. Politically, that's toxic for the government. Absolutely. And, and the fact that they, it, it, and again, yes, that there is, you know, provincial aspect to this issue because, you know, education is and housing is largely a provincial issue. But the federal government is the one that is allowing this number of people to come in. So th- they have to have their eye on the ball. And have a commitment or some sort of guarantee that for each student that is brought into this country, there is an additional unit of housing, student housing, that is being built or maintained for them. Um, and they they did not do that. You know, the, the other part of that number, that the eight or nine hundred thousand, it's not distributed equally, right? It's all in you know where the educate post secondary institutions are. So Greater Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Greater Toronto area, Greater Montreal area. It, it is very heavily concentrated and heavily concentrated in the markets that are already overheated. So, you know, it's almost like if you wanted to create a housing crisis, this would be one very good way to do it. Well, look, it's not just uh, students, uh, you know, let's just go to immigration. Max, I don't don't care where an immigrant uh, to Canada lands in Canada. I know where the immigrant lands eventually. I mean, they, they may, they may come to St. John, New Brunswick, you know, in, in 2023, but there's a very distinct possibility that by 2027 or 2029, they're in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. That's the way things flow in most countries. In most countries, mm-hmm. people end up going to the major metropolitan areas. Now, those are also the places that just happen to be the foundational experiences for liberal success. If liberals don't succeed in Vancouver, Toronto and Montreal, once again, they're out of business. That, that's why so much of this, to me, appears to be a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's a no-brainer to me, too. Um, it It's kind of baffling um, that, that it isn't a no-brainer to the Liberal Party. I think, you know, to some extent, they take their success in those places for granted, you know, in the same way that the Conservatives, I quite rightly, take their success in the prairies for granted, um, but things can change. Um, you know, I reminded of, you know, the, the 93 election where, you know, I grew up, you know, believing that there would always be two, you know, basically the liberals and the, and the progressive conservatives and the NDP would be kind of in the mix. And all of a sudden the progressive conservative party just vanished. Um, so things can change in politics very quickly. And, and, you know, do the liberals have enough time to, to, to undo some of this damage, they're not going to fix the housing market in two years. That's for sure. Um, what they can do, as I, you know, I've written about this, they can move mountains in the same way that they did during COVID and show people that they take it seriously. Um, and then the, the battle becomes, who do they trust more? Do they trust Polyev and his promises or do they trust Trudeau and his promises? And I think they have a better shot there. 
But right now, what they've been serving up to people, especially young people in cities, is a government that has been in power while the situation got noticeably worse and rhetorically doesn't seem to care. And a conservative leader who maybe they don't trust, maybe they don't like, but rhetorically, he gets it. He talks about it in the same way and with the same passion that young people do right now, right? And at the very least, the liberals have to find a way to show young people that this is at the top of their list, not fifth, not seventh, but number one. Max, I need to ask you something that I don't expect a yes or no answer on, but I think it's worthy of discussion as, as things move forward and we look at these these numbers. In a liberal democracy called Canada, should we at some point accept the notion that there is a universal right, a right universally to access to affordable housing, a universal right to access affordable housing. Is that what tomorrow's Canada is all about? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I struggle with that. Um, I struggle with that on a number of levels, um, not least because, I, I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer, but it feels like it would be hard to enforce that right. It feels like where you, you, know, you get into sort of definitional issues of affordability, um, things could get very kind of tricky. But I think Canadians have the right to enforce a political consensus, just as they do around healthcare. Um, that that access to affordable housing is something that must exist, and if it doesn't exist, we will change the government to one that will give it to us. Um, but I think, and I'm I'm working on something about this that I'll I don't know next couple of weeks I'll write about it. But you know the problem with with the way we're talking about housing right now is it still isn't an honest conversation. We're still talking about it like that you know the government can magically cut house prices in half without hurting people, right? You know, Polyev says, "Well, I'll 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 get rid of gatekeepers and bring home more housing, and that'll fix the problem." How? How is that going to fix the problem? If if the only way that that fixes the problem is if it meaningfully reduces house prices. And that wipes out a whole generation of people who bought over the last few years. Um, ironically, it hurts young people much more than it hurts, you know, older Canadians who have paid their houses off or who, you know, have very small mortgages now. So there are always going to be trade-offs in this conversation. I think we have to get past this simplistic, like, well, we'll just let the market build more housing and everything will be better, to how do we build the right kinds of housing that take pressure off in the places where we we have the most pressure, and how do we you know, how do we actually create real affordability? So, you know, that's, there was a report that was released recently from uh, a group of developers and housing experts, including a guy named Mike Moffat, who's sort of everywhere in this conversation right now. And it really focused on seniors housing, student housing, uh, and co-op housing. And, you know, you, you, the government can play a role in building and maintaining affordability in those places. I think that's a really good place to start. Uh, you know, like I grew up in a co-op in Vancouver. Um, you know, my, my, my mom, you know, did not have any equity to give to me, you know, but she also was able to raise me in a place where, you know, things were affordable. We lived in a good neighborhood. We had great neighbors. Um, and that model works. Um, that model was abandoned by the federal government. It was abandoned first by Mulroney's progressive conservatives and then by the Gretchen Martin liberals. It would be nice to see the federal government get back into that game in a big way. That's one way that they can guarantee um, a certain level of affordability for those 
most at the margins. The other way is to focus on the rental market. You know, I, not everyone needs to own a house. This is not a controversial position in Europe, in lots of parts of the world. Um, this sort of obsession with home ownership is is very much a North American thing. And it, we would do well, I think, to focus a lot of these affordability measures on creating units of supply where where you have secure tenure, you can't be evicted, you can't be booted out, you can't you know have your rent jacked up on you. And then if you want to buy, you can build on that foundation. Um, you know, but right now the the rental market is more treacherous than the housing market. Um, and, and and I think that's what has a lot of people really panicked because that was always, you know, that's the place where people are most at risk, most at jeopardy. And if they're seeing their rents go up two, three hundred dollars a year, um, that's that's really hard to come back from. Well, in the city that you live in, uh, Max, in, in Vancouver, rents are now up fourteen and a half percent year after year, fourteen and a half percent. I mean, who who can who can sustain it? Who can afford it? Let, let me go to something else. That's um, sorry, it, it, it's economics, but once again, math uh, matters. One can't just uh, obsess about culture wars. Um, there's always this talk about how the market can figure this out and the market can figure that out. There's, there's no reason why the federal government cannot create its own market. Um, you talk about co-op housing and co-op housing that you were brought up in. That, that housing was not part of the so-called free market. That was a separate market created by the government, just like when the government after World War II uh, needed housing uh, for its veterans. They created a separate market. It wasn't the kind of market where a person could own something, live in, you know, own where they lived and then sell it for, for a profit. Uh, that, that's, that's not socialism. That's just uh, giving people, uh, I guess, what we would call in Canada, a social safety net. Once again, access to affordable housing. There's no reason why you can't create a market like that for people who are without means, uh, that is the homeless and and those people who have very very modest means. There's no reason why you can't create a market like that for students. No reason why you can't create a market like that for seniors. I mean, the the stuff that Moffat is talking about. The reason he's all over the place is he makes sense. Exactly. I mean, he has done his homework. He understands this issue and and knows where the the leverage points are for the federal government. I mean, the, the you know the the free market fundamentalists will always reject the government getting involved in these sorts of things. But I think in a way, that's a really interesting opportunity for the Trudeau liberals to kind of get back in this ballgame is to really go big on social housing, government housing, you know, in these in those specific areas that Moffat mentions um, and really kind of force Polyev to make his case, um, because I suspect he will oppose those those things. He will oppose building more co-ops, more social housing, more student housing, more senior housing. Because he sees only one solution to this, as he does to many things, which is the market, and that's an interesting conversation. If it, you know, not one politician who cares about it versus a government that doesn't seem to, but one party that thinks the market is the solution versus one party that thinks that the government has a role to play here. Um, you know, no guarantees that that the liberals are able to win on this issue uh, or even kind of get back into into a reasonable sort of, uh, you know, draw with the conservatives on it. But it, I think it's their best hope of getting back in the game. And, and that's clearly what they need. They need to give young people, people at the margins, some hope that this situation is going to get better because it has consistently gotten worse for the last 15 years, you know. Um, and and it's, it really wears on you. I know lots of people in Vancouver and Toronto play in those markets where, 
you know, they've been waiting, waiting, waiting for a correction, waiting to, you know, they didn't want to spend all their money and get totally leveraged just to buy a, you know, teardown. And they kind of feel like they've watched their lives pass them by. Um, it's really frustrating, uh, especially when, you know, you had older older generations kind of maybe in your ear about, oh, you should buy. It's always the best decision. Um, you know, it was much easier for them uh, to buy a generation or two ago than it is today. But um, it really can consume a lot of your energy and your attention. And honestly, people shouldn't have to spend this much time thinking about housing. They have other things to focus on, their kids, their careers, their passions, their travel, whatever it might be. People don't live and they don't, they, they shouldn't have their lives revolve around shelter. Um, and I, you know, I think that's one thing that the government could really help with is create a basic sort of benchmark of stability of shelter, stability of, of, uh, of tenure, and then let people get on with their lives. Uh, cause you know, this is great for developers. This is great for landlords. It's great for real estate speculators, but why in the world are we revolving, uh, you know, orienting our economy and our society around their interests? Madness. The price of food and the price of shelter, is that the reason the Liberals are paying a horrible political price according to the latest polling? If the price of food and the price of shelter were no longer controversial issues, would the Liberals be head-to-head with the Conservatives right now? Would they be ahead of them? How much are these issues actually supporting the Conservatives, regardless of where they may be on culture wars? I think it would be a lot closer. Um... It, it, the the cost of living stuff is uh, it it feels like you're um, you know that frog that's being boiled in a pot of water right you know I I notice it every time I go to the grocery store I pick something up and I'm like has pasta always been three dollars and ninety nine cents a package I don't remember it being that expensive like it it wears on you um, and it's sort of this almost daily or you know every time you go to the grocery store it just it's a grind. Uh, even if your salary is, is, you know, you're getting a raise, uh, like so many people are right now, uh, it just doesn't feel like it's keeping up. Um, and, and so I, you know, it really, I think orients people to being open to a different political choice. I, you know, I think that the job that the liberals need to be doing, and they aren't, they're absolutely awful at this right now is just trying to highlight what the other choice would mean. Um, because there's nothing that Polyev is saying or proposing that would change the price of, of pasta at the grocery store. You know, getting rid of the carbon tax is, is you know, the king of nothing burgers on this issue. I think, you know, it's been studied many, many times, uh, despite what the quote unquote food, pr- food professor likes to say on Twitter. Um, and the carbon tax, I think, has an impact of about half a percent uh, on food prices. So, you know, you, you'll notice that food inflation is a huge issue in the United States. They don't have a carbon tax. So it's, you know, it's not the carbon tax. Getting rid of the carbon tax isn't going to do anything for that. And guess what? Uh, you know, the rebate, which, again, the, the liberals have not communicated well, but the rebate actually benefits the, the lowest income Canadians. The, the 20% poorest and the, the 20% above them are net beneficiaries, even when you include the modeled economic impact. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to help people at the bottom of the ladder... Getting rid of the carbon tax and the rebate is the, probably one of the dumber things you can do. Um, so, I, I, you know, they, they need to do a better job of explaining, here's what we're doing about this cost of living issue, but here's what the other guys are proposing. Um, because right now, it really, again, feels like one side is proposing to do something 
and the other side is not really doing enough. And in that situation, I think voters will naturally gravitate towards the alternative. So don't ask me why, but the other day I was in the mood uh, for grapes and happened to be at uh, Walmart. And so a box of grapes, I think it was three pounds. It wasn't very large, three pounds. But the, the number was $8.50. And I thought to myself, no wonder the liberals are in trouble. $8.50 for a few grapes? Mm-hmm. That's, that, that, that's crazy, Max. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I think they slept on this food, food inflation issue. And, and you know, I, and I, maybe I'm guilty of this sometimes, but pointing out that there's food price inflation in other parts of the world doesn't, doesn't help you, right? It doesn't feed your family. It doesn't make your bill smaller. Um, it, it, is, it is a kind of cold comfort uh, to people who are, are really stressed out by this stuff. And I think they could, could have gotten in the game a little earlier, um, you know, maybe with some direct supports. Uh, you know, I understand that, that you know, the, the economists would have hated that because that, of course, feeds inflation. But I think as a government, and, and this is a lesson I think that this government has not learned particularly well, uh, economists don't always have your best interests at heart. And economists are not exactly notorious for being good communicators with the public. And so, you know, you look at things like the carbon tax and, and some of their policies, they're a big hit with economists. Economists are less than 1% of the population. They might even be less than 0.1% of the population. And you need to orient your policies in a way that that regular people can understand and appreciate. It's why, you know, the the approach to climate change that the Americans are using is is I think way more popular and way more durable, because people don't see it every time they fill up or every time they go to the grocery store. They just go, well, the government's spending some money somewhere on incentives for you know for industrial uh, uh, projects, and I guess that's a good thing. It doesn't bother me. Um, they don't see the the you know the, the the cost showing up on their tax bill, but every time you go to the gas station in Canada, every time you go to the grocery store, it's broken out right there on your bill for for the gas station, and it's just a reminder that the government has their thumb on this particular scale, um, and a lot of people don't like it. And you know, look, I wish we lived in a society where everyone had you know a foundational understanding of economics, but we very clearly don't, and you got to play the hand you're dealt. Max Fawcett, uh, give me a, uh, just a, a preview of your next column in the National Observer, and then I, I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> um, I'm going to be writing, I wrote today about um, uh, a lady named Sheila Lewis, uh, who was a, uh, she had a terminal illness, needed, a, needed an organ transplant, and refused to get it because of the COVID-19 vaccine. She, she weirdly got all of her other vaccines, but then refused to get this one vaccine, and of course, the hospital wouldn't give it to her because, you know, they have perfectly good reasons uh, to, to prioritize people who have all their vaccinations. It's become a big culture war thing with the, the anti-vax community. And, and I just sort of wrote about, uh, you know, what that means um, for this sort of ongoing conservative war on expertise. And, you know, the fact that, that Pierre Polyev and his new candidate in, in York Center in Toronto are treating this woman like a martyr. Um, it, it does not bode well for a fact-based and uh, reality-based conversation. Uh, and then the next column after that will be about what I feel is sort of a building attempt to undermine our courts. Um, you know, there's been a couple of pieces in the National Post about how, you know, judges are, are they're biased towards liberal donors. And, you know, the actual facts of the case are very thin gruel, but uh, it's being sort of played up like this, this, uh, 
this argument or it's supporting this argument that our courts are biased, that they're politicized. What I think is really happening is that conservatives want our courts to be politicized. They, I've had, I can't even tell you the number of um, conservatives who have DM me saying, well, one of Stephen Harper's biggest failures is he didn't politicize the courts enough. Imagine that. But um, that will be a key part of Polyev's agenda if he becomes prime minister is making our court system more overtly political, more like the American one. Uh, I think that's disastrous. Um, and so I'm going to write about it. Max Fawcett writes for the National Observer. Unfortunately, we're having him on this show from time to time. And he is among our most popular when it comes to to download. So uh, you're welcome in advance. I'll say you're welcome <laughs> for the thank you you're about to offer uh, for the Max Fawcett conversation. Max Fawcett is in Calgary. I just want to thank everyone who tunes into these podcasts and tells their, their friends and neighbors. Uh, remember uh, to either follow or like or subscribe. Either either action, it, it doesn't matter to me. It's just uh, the way that we, uh, we, uh, we grow this baby. And I thank you very much for participating in that growth. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press. And every day at criermedia.co.